spoke about also these um uh the video stories that reuters has which also become some kind of stock footage for live shots but there are also these uh small uh you know movies that journalists make many of them are on your podcast as well i think there was uh yona yona m kessel uh yona kessel yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, how do you look at that kind of reporting and what is the kind of uh, range in which that reporting exists that those 30 minute films that they create and where does it all start I mean, actually i i don't i don't actually know I, i'm not too involved in that i mean uh, certainly you know reuters does also produce packaged videos that are you know 3 to 5 minutes long um about uh, you know about anything kind of but more general news human interest things like that um but uh, the, the interesting thing that Jonah said in his interview is his team is the team that actually shoots the stuff but he said the video team is much much larger than that and these days you don't like the there he said there's just so much video like yeah. you don't always need to send somebody to go shoot it you can like you know use security cam footage you can use you know all the wires you can use like the internet like <laughs> Stop videos footage, and get yeah. permission to use them and you can tell a really compelling story without necessarily having to go shoot it just because of the proliferation of like everybody has a camera in their pocket so um i thought that was pretty interesting um and i i know another journalist who does that kind of work i haven't had on the podcast but uh you know like their visual team and you know he won't go shoot stuff but they'll make incredibly compelling videos about like picking apart the the killing of George Floyd or like looking at drone bombings in the Middle East and things like that all based on just footage they find i mean to some extent also some of these uh, 30 minute news stories kind of become short documentaries in a way right or there is a or do you see a like a clear difference between journalism and documentary filmmaking is there what do, what do you see do you see a difference between those two i mean again this is going way out of my area of expertise but uh i think that you know documentarians play by a different set of rules um but you'll see similarities because now you know journalists are getting more into the documentary space the new york times is expanding more into documentaries and i think they bring the principles of journalism into that um but you know documentarians themselves i uh, purely documentarians i think there's a big debate over you know where certain lines are what the rules are what you can and can't do um and it's a bit more loose and there's a lot more disagreement whereas in journalism it's a bit more you know uh tightly hewing to facts and reality and not doing reenactments and things like that that some documentarians might do okay do you have a a, a rule book that you can sort of recite off the top of your head like really important sort of principles like 5 or 6 or is that a very thick book that all of you have to read this is a very I mean, dumb Reuter, question but yeah no no i mean i wouldn't say i have something memorized i mean reuters has what's called the trust principles which we're all supposed to hew to and we all do i mean but I I like those because they're very common sense. It's just basically don't do anything that would make somebody feel like their trust has been violated. Don't, you know, mm-hmm. represent things in a way that is going to make the reader think you're misleading them. Don't, you know, always be completely upfront with your sources. If 
you're going to quote them and they want it to be anonymous, you know, talk to them about, you know, well, can I say you work for this ministry or can I, you know, do everything, just be completely upfront about everything. Um, and, but yeah, at the end of the day, the trust principle is just, you know, don't violate the readers, the sources trust. And, uh, you know, uh, I think as an institution, like that's a pretty strong culture. And I think that exists in, in many of more hard news um, type publications. Um, obviously, you know, it's a bit different if you're more in opinion analysis, things like that. Right. Um, it's, you know, facts, you can still be pretty black and white about the facts. When you're writing your articles, how do you choose? First, do you have, do you, do you use images in your articles? Uh, that you write long yeah yeah i mean they'll you know it'll get packaged with photos when it goes on reuters.com but on the wire you know we put out photos we put out text and the clients can decide whether or not they want to use them both um but in general if you put photo text and video out together those are always the most used stories like these days people want everything um, you know, most of the time I don't shoot the photos, but sometimes I go on trips and I've got to shoot the photo, got to shoot the video because I'm the only person there. Um, but most of the time it's handled by, you know, colleagues who do just photo or just video. And like, say, if it's not a story that, you know, I went out to do anything, it's more research phone based, like, yeah, they'll look into the archive and pull a file photo. The photo editor will think what's the best photo to go with this, um, and okay. put it down. And same sometimes happens with archived video footage, but but a bit less. Video, it's more immediate. Like, you know, you wouldn't pull up an old video most of the time. So it depends on a story-to-story -story basis when you use like a stock file photo or when you actually go out there to click, yeah, click something. Specificity is... Right, yeah. If there's something fresh, we'll always use the, the fresh thing we got that day, but you know, uh, especially these days in the pandemic, like I'm doing all my work. I mean, I've only gone out for two stories and the rest, it's all, you know, I work the phones, I talk to sources, I do interviews all remotely. So it doesn't leave a lot to see. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I feel like the photo editor job would be really cool. Just yeah. sit around and pick pictures for people. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty high pressure just because, you know, uh, when X, Y, or Z happens, Bolsonaro gets stabbed, which happened. What? You know, how can you get, uh, yeah, he got stabbed on the campaign trail. How can you get photos of that as fast as possible? And oftentimes these things happen on off hours. And, you know, yeah, I mean, that's the news business, but these editors have to be like, you know, Neymar got hurt. We've got to fly somebody to be outside of his hospital. Like when he comes out and we need to get oh. the picture then. And like, yeah, it's pretty, it can be pretty high pressure, I would oh, say. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... And in general, these editor jobs, you know, there aren't that many of them. And like these guys have had, you know, great careers to that point as photographers out in the field. And, you know, they're, they're, uh, are only so many of these jobs, you know, most photographers are, are stringers, freelancers, and they can make a great living on it. But like, uh, yeah, that kind of, uh, more set jobs is kind of the cream of the crop, I guess I would say. Yeah. I like the separation that there is a kind of, a 
I don't know if it's a separation, but there is a, a, a specialist within the journalism discipline that has a very different role inside. Uh, because journalism primarily, I would say, text, no? Like, that's most yeah, part of I its mean, history. There's a huge, you know, debate over, like, you know, backpack journalists were, like, the big thing that they were telling us about in college, like, 15 years ago, and, like, oh, one person doing it all, blah, 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 <laughs> which, you know, I have had to do that, but I would say, like, Generally, when people are specialized, it produces uh, better stuff. You know, I like the photos and videos I take, but are they as good as my colleague who just does photos and spends all of his time thinking about photos and what makes a good photo and like, you know, can, you know, flip his camera settings, like kind of half thinking, like, you know, doesn't even really have to think about it as he is doing it. Uh, no, no, they're not that good. Um, nice. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move towards, uh, go back to one of the things that we kind of noticed or while we were going through your research is that you worked in Beijing and now in Brasilia. Uh, both of these are, both of these are like capital cities in a way. Uh, Mm -hmm. capitals, what, what makes you want to work in a capital for a, of a country? Like, especially considering that you haven't really worked in uh, DC, right? Uh, from where? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So the, these are different countries in the world. How do you look at the capital cities in in this? And what makes you want to work in such a space? Is is a capital city different from any other city? to work in, for example? I mean, a capital city is just like the power center. So, I mean, the new policies, the new information, a lot of it comes out of here. And a lot of the less predictable things because politics is determined by humans and like they've got to got to say it for us to know <laughs> what, what is the new policy. Um, so, I mean, it's more the, the jobs dictate where I live than Uh, any thinking about capital cities and like capital cities need journalists because of what I just said. So I would say it's more to do with that. I mean, I've lived in, uh, you know, Wisconsin, right outside of Chicago at Northwestern. I've lived in Nanjing, which is a city in Southern China. I've lived in Shanghai. I've lived in Beijing and now I've lived in Brasilia. So there's a good mix there. I mean, I would say that uh, living in capital cities, uh, I mean, just to bring it back to architecture, I mean, I get to enjoy some of the best architecture in the world because a lot of these places, you know, that invest in striking architecture or iconic architecture are the capitals because, you know, they, I don't know, it's some weird sort of branding almost. So like in Beijing, I used to always commute on a scooter. And back then you could drive right by Tiananmen Square, right between you know, the gate with the Mao picture and then the square. And I used to do that every single day on my way to work. And I mean, it really... You're talking about Changanjie, right? Yeah, yeah. You and it really makes anymore? you... No, they, towards the end of uh, when I was there, they they outlawed it. You can bicycle pass now, but you can't. No, wow. no motorized scooters. Okay. Um, it's a safety thing. Um, they're concerned, you know, obviously about attacks and things like that there. Um, was an attack, but but that was a car. 
Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with the scooter rule. Um, and you know, it's just, it really, that imprints on you. Like, wow, I am in this place that is, you know, unique in the world. And there's a reason I'm here as a journalist, like, and it impresses on you. Like, I mean, it is the image everybody knows of China and it's like, wow, I'm really here living it firsthand. Um, and, you know, in Brasilia here, I've had two different commutes cause we moved offices, but every day I would, uh, when I first moved here, I would walk by the, the Don Bosco church, which is this famous church that is, uh, made all out of these like tiny, pieces of blue glass. Oh, and so over mm -hmm. the course of the day, you know, it's like lit up differently and, you know, it creates a very uh, cool effect inside. And, you know, I used to get to walk by that every day. And now when I used to go to the office, you know, I again have to walk through the equivalent of Chang'anjia, oh, like okay. right past the government buildings. And, you know, you look down and you can see Congress with the two bowls and all the Nehemiah architecture and all the ministries lined up on the sides. And uh, it's a longer walk, but it's cool. It's like every day, you know, you get reminded, oh, yeah, I am in the capital. It's right there. Um, and uh, is there something so, striking about that architecture? Do you find it like uh, you're talking of, about Brazil? Right? Yeah, Brasilia right now. Like, is there something overwhelming about it or what 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 does it evoke in you? Um, or does it evoke anything? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, uh, I always refer to it as like Brasilia is living in like Disney's Tomorrowland. Like it's <laughs> like what people thought the future would be back in the sixties or the fifties. Um, and like literally, yeah, I think, you know, it does look like some of that Disney stuff built way back then at Disney world or something that like, <laughs> this is what the future will be like. Um, so I mean, it is, uh, I don't know. It's hard, hard to explain. Like it does impress upon you that this is a place with a history and it's not the same as everywhere else in the world. It doesn't look the same as anywhere else in the world, but in terms of what it makes me feel, I guess showing up, I was just surprised how much smaller things are than I thought. This Nehemiah architecture, like you see it in pictures and it, uh, it seems so you know, majestic and huge and these big, you know, uh, uh, surfaces and, and things like that. And then you see it yeah. and you see it and it's like, oh, it's actually kind of, you know, small. Cute. It's it's like compared to like the U.S. Capitol building, which is gigantic in comparison to anything here. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. And I don't know, it's it's interesting to be in a place where it has a co somewhat cohesive visual style where they let Nehemiah come in and, you know, and work with the same landscape architect and architect and I forget the other one there's and they like set the standards for the city and if it's shaped like an airplane and if you're in the wings of the airplane there where I live, where most of the residential is, there are certain rules you have to follow like the ground floors nobody can live on the ground floor. Basically all the ground floors are pillars that you can see through. So like, oh. you know, and all the buildings have to be six stories tall or less. And like, it creates this kind of cohesion that it's like, almost like, am I in a college campus? Like what, <laughs> what is going on here? Um, but, 
So that that's interesting about Brasilia. And the, the other thing I will just say is that it's not completely uniform. There's some very interesting things that have kind of just sprouted up freeform around this and the kind of messier development that's actually also, I think, equally interesting, this kind of contrast. Like two roads away is where when they were building the city, it's a, you know, made up city. It's a, I forget what the term is, but, you know, there are only so many capitals that they picked. Like we're going to build a capital in this random place. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a lot of them. I've been to Abuja in Nigeria is one of them. Uh, Washington, D.C. is one of them. Brasilia is one of them. I guess I need to go to Canberra in Australia. <laughs> and like there's like Napida and Myanmar. And uh, what was I going to say about that? But it's kind of like they always envision it in a certain way and it's always supposed to be a model city and then how it actually happens is a bit different. So they created it in the middle of like these arid highlands where, you know, half the year it's extremely dry. And, you know, they built these kind of shanty cities for the workers when they were building the city. And two streets away is where like the engineer families and the, the architect families lived. And they just decided we're going to build our houses here. And you go over there and it's like, they <laughs> knocked down a lot of the shanty towns, but these kind of more middle-class people had more clout. Yeah. And they're like, you're not going to knock down our houses. <laughs> and so it's this weird mishmash of strange architecture and people built however they felt like in huge houses and tiny houses all like put together. And there's always a lane of for like driving and then a lane of like trees and like nature between and it's like three rows of this. And it's just such a bizarre like mishmash of completely everything from completely ugly to completely like unique, beautiful architecture in there. It's really pretty strange. And that's that's one of the things that's not symmetrical. If you go up to the north side, like that doesn't exist because for whatever reason, they're like, we're going to build our shit right here. <laughs> um, sorry, one sec. I got to just plug in my computer. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like um, it's uh, it does two that kind of shows two things at least at first sight. First, like you mentioned, people with clout. Uh, that means even in a capital city, uh, architecture somehow can represent uh, these uh, the power structures. Basically, how how people whose who's talking to whom, who's a favorite of whose, and kind of where they live still tells you, uh, even in a city like Brasilia, where the whole idea was to have this, you know, complete democratization of uh, what should happen in the future and make everything uniform, make everything look similar. Everyone gets, um, you know, similar uh, housing quality and things like that. And something like that still exists or manages to uh, survive uh, this kind of uh, new uh, aspiration that they planned back then. So that for sure, yeah. it, sh it still shows. And somehow architecture was used to um, became sort of the, the tool in, in showing how, how these relationships work yeah, second, yeah i mean yeah. i also think i mean yeah no, go, go ahead. ahead no no go ahead go ahead 
No, it's 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 interesting how like they built this city for like it a lot of it is for what yeah they envisioned people wanted in the 1960s like my mm-hmm. apartment is unnecessarily large it's got a place where a maid could live in the back and it's like you know nowadays it's something that if you live in one of these apartments in the wings you know built in the according to the rules that Nehemiah and I'm mixing his name with Neymar, I think, but uh, came up with, then you're actually very upper class probably these days, you know, it was Mm. supposed to be this common thing. And like, you know, they're all built around what are blocks or blockus and everyone was supposed to have a, a, you know, a bakery or like there's a commercial street out Mm -hmm. front Mm -hmm. and like, everyone had a primary school and then every fourth one had a middle school and every eighth one had a Hmm. high school. And like, it it was supposed to be one size fits all, but how, you know, now you're probably, you know, middle-class at the very least to, to live in one of these buildings and the people who live over in those like mishmash of buildings, which, you know, are variously maintained, you know, might actually be, uh, poorer now. Um, so the, that's the strangest um, uh, gentrification that I can think of. <laughs> but th- that said, I mean, uh, like if you're actually uh, working class, you probably yeah live outside of the pilot plan. You live in a suburb. It's, you know, that sort of deal that is more, you know, like uh, in Paris and stuff, the the poor areas aren't in the city. They're the suburbs. It's the, right. you know, reverse of the United States. Um but and one of the reasons that is, it's because they they made this artificial lake here. And I'd be interested to hear if you have opinions on artificial lakes, because they were big on them in Brazil at a certain point. <laughs> like the guy who designed Brazilia, he did the exact same thing in a city not that far away. And he's like, we're going to just make a lake right here. And uh, they basically flooded huge amounts of the areas where the like working class builders lived. So it was like okay, we're done. Get the fuck out. <laughs> like, so like, you know, there's a small area in the middle that didn't get flooded. That's probably existed since then. But otherwise, you know, if you're working class, you had to go, you know, the periphery. At least I don't know anything about why uh, people were obsessed with artificial lakes, apart from uh, running water, it being a source of uh, water containment. And- no, but there's also been always this... Uh, within the elements kind of a oh, idea. Oh yeah, the five elements. It's mm-hmm. always like a, a like a f- elements idea, you know? Water as... Earth. Uh, uh, yeah. Captain Planet stuff. Right? Yeah, Captain Planet <laughs> stuff taken to really serious proportions to create... Uh, Expensive clap- Captain no, Planet but, stuff. <laughs> but on a more serious note, if you also look at uh, how Corbusier does the Shuren Villa, he makes a building as a landscaping artifact one of the readings is that it's like a piece which sits in the landscape and it has to be it's it's almost like a like a huge stone sitting in a park you know Corbusier right you've heard of him no I don't think so oh he was a a, let's say pioneer father of modernism in architecture Um, his earliest and most famous works are from around the turn of the century, uh, uh, 20th century, and to, uh, I think the last stuff I know is around 70s. Uh, and he has also built 
uh, her huge state capital, like a provincial capital in India, right from scratch, the same time Brasilia was being built. Yeah. And he was personally invited mm. by the prime minister, the first prime minister of India to come and uh, design that. So uh, Nehemiah and Corbusier are often uh, mentioned in the same breath yeah. if people are talking about urban design or urban uh, planning and things like that, at least as far as yeah, they were principles and these ideas are concerned because they wrote also about the, the ideas. The CM the, chapter. And yeah, and they the, wrote down manifestos of how this should be done and why and uh, what <clears throat> what it means for the um, uh, for a modern world. They kind of con conceptualized what architecture should do in an industrial and a modern uh, future. And a lot of that still happens. I mean, we, we constantly rethink a lot of that, but a lot of those things um, are somehow embedded in the in the DNA of what goes on anywhere around the world, including where we used to be in, in Beijing. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of little details or even systems that are applied across cities in, in China that, that can be traced back to some of the um, writings and thoughts of uh, especially these two and some more, of course. This is a very, very rich uh, discourse. But anyway, since uh, Corbusier came up and he was specifically talking about a house that Corbusier designed in Ahmedabad, India, which is very famous for... Um, yeah, I mean... It it's 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 almost read like a sort of uh, element like a like when you do landscaping in your garden or something you know like you put mm -hmm. these huge boulders somehow so if you imagine a building being a huge boulder you know it's very it's got its very crisp precise lines but it's also uh, considered to be like this huge block monolith sitting in an idea of a landscape. And then you can start to... Maybe, in. Yeah. I'd, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I, since you're a journalist, maybe you're also interested to know that that was also a time <coughs> where metaphor was a very um, important uh, means of conceptualizing architecture. So there was a lot of talk in terms of... Um, a house is a machine for living, you know, <laughs> and the whole city is a is a house and things like that were often said and proclaimed by authors and architects uh, to help conceptualize um, some of what we have ended up with, like in your case, Brasilia, in our case, Chandigarh as a city in India. Yeah, and I think. I mean, <laughs> the only reason I think I can look at artificial lakes being justified is then if it's a capital <laughs> and everyone's running hyper, then you need to show them some water to calm, calm, calm them down. Them down <laughs> I think that's that's as far as this <laughs> can this might go also. <laughs> but I mean, right, yeah. I don't know. Do you look at um, architecture as something that reports culture or society? Um, I don't know, maybe it's, 
on that reading, I mean, I think kind of more of the, you know, free form stuff speaks to it more than, you know, the architect who comes in with a vision. Like, I mean, I was thinking about that. And in Brazil, like what is more the defining look of Brazil is I can go to any small town in the Amazon or around Brasilia or, you know, even on the coast and things all kind of look a similar style because they're all using the same like really cheap building materials and like that is almost more defining of the look than like you know it's actually more exceptional for somebody to come in and say i'm going to build this you know this uniform city with this uniform feel um and so i would associate yeah more with the style of brazil and the brazilian culture this kind of more you know, messy development um, and kind of, you know, is injected more with the Brazilian casualness about everything. And, you know, partially because it's a place where it's, you know, it doesn't get cold, like the, the weather's pretty okay. Like you don't need to build these superstructures to be able to survive. You know, you can survive with a hammock and like, mm. you know, a little roof, like, um, so... So, yeah, I mean, but uh, certainly I'm sure like architects, like, yeah, they're trying to say something with their architecture, but, uh, you know, how much that hues, it hues to their vision of the culture, how the culture should be. And yeah, I feel like there's more of like a should in there than an is. Um, like this was Niermeyer's version of like what he thought Brazil should aspire to. Um and, you know, obviously it went off the tracks pretty quick. <laughs> you know, there's not a bakery in every block. You know, the blocks have like become a free for all. And like it leads to some weird phenomenons like one block is all pharmacies. And you're like, why would you want only pharmacies or only electronic stores? But the stores start to group together. And so now you you can't walk down to your bakery. You got to go get in your car and go to block which has a bakery or go to the block which has electronics or go to the block that has pharmacies and it's like this is not like it was envisioned as every block would be its own community with everything you need and um so that's one sign another sign is just like they thought people would be big on buses and but of course everybody like if they have another option they'll take another option versus a bus and so like the city was designed for buses but then everybody just was like well we're gonna get our own cars <laughs> and uh so I'm out. <laughs> it didn't. It hasn't run exactly how they envisioned, but uh, yeah, it was. It was an interesting idea. There, there was another thing I was going to say about that, just in terms of like the opulence of which it was built. You know, these striking buildings, but you know, Brasilia is crumbling. It's falling apart. Like they are having a lot of trouble maintaining all this stuff. You know, buildings will fall down. Parts of roads will fall apart. Like, you know, uh, it's kind of disconcerting living here, going under an underpass, being like, this could collapse on me. So it's <laughs> it's kind of this Disney's Tomorrowland that's also kind of decaying. It's Yeah, that's it's, a common problem with cities that were built up at the like everything in it was built up at the same time because everything's going to go bad at the same time this, this, you know when they start from scratch it's the tabula rasa situation but i i mean i also think i think it something has to be also said about this idea of um, 
when you when you speak of this opulence of sorts you know like there are sort of these um uh power structures embedded within these kind of experiments right and and uh you being a journalist see this very clearly it comes comes to the fore more uh more more clearly yeah it's like it's like that fresh eyes thing you said like yeah things that we've been reading and sort of been focused on uh we don't see certain things the way you would yeah i mean we were reading and looking at uh, someone speak about how architecture aestheticizes uh, power or mm-hmm. embeds power structures within uh, it becomes more apparent you see power because of that and some of the things that you talk about today also are some of them are like balls to the walls hilarious <laughs> when all the pharmacies and all the bakeries get grouped <laughs> in certain places together but but some some of the things are very interesting you know it, when you say uh, you look at these government buildings but they are still in decay <laughs> how do you start to reconcile or yeah get, it's like this strange feel good story that is still told but the realities of it are absolute uh, absolute tragedy yeah because this is like the 20th century feel good aspirational the war is over we're all just going to go in one direction and we're going to be all a big happy family and then the cold war but then the end of history but you know and then we are we're left with do you know the phrase what white elephants mean afraid I know the game that we play at Christmas in my family where we all bring old gifts and then exchange them and that's called a white elephant. So I'm imagining okay, it's that, not that. That I don't know. <laughs> in India, we say white elephant basically means something that's too expensive to maintain. Yeah. Okay. No, that sounds like it's... That someone's going to steal your white elephant. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, the other thing I was going to say about Brasilia is that and about journalists in general is I feel like how we we get to enjoy a lot of architecture that I guess a lot of people don't get to. Like I can get a press pass and I can go into the presidential palace. I can go into the Congress. I can, you know, I could go into the Supreme Court or, the, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And in, in Beijing, same thing. Like I've, you know, run through the halls, the great hall of the people to like get the news first. And I'm like... Not a lot of people get to do this. And, you know, it's these, this opulence. And yeah, I'd be shot if I was built... running there. <laughs> What's that? I'd be shot if I was caught running there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were running to get, you know, the annual government report and uh, that they stack up on tables on the second floor and you're all running upstairs, like trying to grab it. <laughs> Does anyone um, get a video of that happening? <laughs> That'd be great meme material. Know, I feel like, you know, if somebody hasn't done that, Good God, like, yeah, what low-hanging fruit for a good story. <laughs> um, the, the meta story is actually a pretty yeah. good story. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, it's interesting, these kind of public projects, you know, they're meant to be public spaces, but actually access is kind of, you know, restricted to these public spaces. Mm-hmm. So I suppose you can go and look at the outside and feel like, oh, like, this represents my country and I'm like so I'm proud, proud we were able to 
build build this, but at the same time, like you can't go into these public buildings <laughs> yeah. unless you have permission. So yeah, it's, in Germany, it's I think you can get an appointment and go to the Reichstag. You know, you can go there as, but even there, the, in most public buildings, also even in with, in India, if you go there, they sort of have a closed pu- area for closed tour. areas, and then there are these public access areas. So th- those those boundaries are very strongly established uh, at least now i mean maybe some years ago it wasn't the case mm. you know but, but it's great like the, the the whole idea of the fourth pillar of democracy whether you are in a democracy or not somehow <laughs> the fourth pillar works even in china um uh, that, <laughs> yeah i that mean you, guys uh, you can to... you can i was just going to say you can take a tour of most of the government buildings here in brazil okay. um probably not so much in china <laughs> but the fourth pillar also sort of um has access to uh architecture that is at the sort of high, height of power that is so charged right. with with power and and can sort of either experience it and convey the experience outside and journalism um brings that back to the outside or even report directly like uh I, 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 this is very common. The images of, let's say, a Chinese premier are rarely um, on a desk like the number of images you'll see on the internet of the Oval Office itself, the inside of it. Yeah. Right. That's you know, true. And that's an architectural comment as far as I'm concerned, because for me, it's... Uh, showing the Chinese premier in the Great Hall or at a big uh, rally or something on those lines or, or on a big table with him leading a meeting with a lot of people there uh, discussing or taking instructions. You know, these, these are sort of regimes, visual regimes that as a journalist uh, you, you, you seem to encounter at very, very close quarters and... Uh, have the sort of privilege of going back and reporting and architecture sort of sits right in the middle of it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, politics is to some degree theater and, you know, the theater needs, needs a set. So (laughs) that's very well put. I like that, that uh, analogy there. (laughs) Sounds (laughs) I have I have one question that just comes because you mentioned something about uh, that you recording the journalists running <laughs> to get that report and then this idea of reporting that itself as a meta project. How often does journalism go meta? <laughs> um, increasingly more so. I mean, I, you could argue my podcast is entirely meta, but yeah. you'll, yeah, you'll also see... Is, uh, like New York Times and writers and many places, like on the biggest stories, they'll have, you know, a sidebar of the story about the story or here's how we told this story. And uh, yeah, I mean, supposedly people want more transparency about how this thing is stuff is done, which <coughs> kind of runs counter to the tradition where it used to be always like, you know, you you should make it about the subject and not about yourself. But it's interesting that to some degree, while people actually do want to know who is bringing them the news and how they're bringing the news so they know if they can trust it or not. Um, 
So yeah, it's been interesting to see things go in that direction. And I don't entirely know how I feel about it. I feel like my instincts are kind of to not, you know, despite the podcast, you know, my, my instincts are to keep myself out of my work. Um, but is that the right instincts? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's also, uh, it's also a tough position to take when the podcast is about introducing a person. Every you hear, week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the idea that this is a person, it's a journalist takes his or her job extremely seriously and this is their life <laughs> you're putting it out there so it's it's kind of right. tough to not have to think about the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis having access to uh, hearing listening and then disseminating those kind of stories as well no it gets to that point also yeah yeah i mean i i definitely do think about it and you know i, I think we are pretty transparent in our work to maybe do a fault, you know, writers like every sentence will be cited to something like, you know, you will read a story and you will know exactly how we got it. And that can be frustrating to me if I'm say reading a newspaper and they just say something as a fact. I'm like, well, how do they know that? And I ask this as a journalist, of course, because I want to prove everything, but it's, it's ridiculous of me to not think that a normal person might ask that question. And like, <laughs> you know, that somehow I have a right to ask it, but they don't. Uh, so I, I think it is valid to want to know exactly and trace the path your news has taken to get to you. Do you ever get flack uh, for uh, stuff that you say or hear on your podcast from your journalist friends? I No, I don't think I have. Like certainly, you know, my journalistic work, like I would say every journalist gets, you know, trolls and things like that. Uh, but in terms of feedback on the podcast itself, I would say it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, I try to use it to be a booster of journalism. And I think, you know, it's hard to hate on that. <laughs> but uh, I like how he puts it. It's hard to hate on that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when, when I first started, I wasn't sure how, you know, people would react. Um, you know, I, I try not to get, it's not an opinion-y type thing. And like, as you know, Reuters is very, very neutral. And like, even now, uh, when I was talking about the job earlier, like I try to keep everything straight and factual, um, because you don't want to uh, bias yourself as it's called. You don't want to show bias that people if you're later reporting on this or that people say but you said that three years ago and this shows you were out to get us in the first place that sort of thing like so i mean it's most of the time you know it doesn't veer that way and that's why it's more of like telling the stories and things like that than debating say the big ideas and journalism today you know um yeah reuters is like yeah consistently like the most neutral or like uh, true neutral in Dungeons and Dragons, basically, mm. or uh, Switzerland or whatever you want. <laughs> Switzerland <laughs> is not very neutral. <laughs> if you've seen the, what's that movie about the Wall Street? Um, the Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf yeah, Wall Street. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. see the scene where uh, Leo DiCaprio figures out how to hide his money and the French uh, Swiss banker in oh, front of yeah. him. <laughs> They're neutral yeah. to 
to those that uh, wish to access that neutral neutrality by specific means. Let us put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, Jake, do you have any questions for us? <laughs> so I have several doubts. Uh, so we're not night. like truth to speak truth to power. We have no power. So, yeah, go yeah, easy. so. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, only, no. I only have one question like that. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with the more closed end ones. I just like, I watched this movie uh, last night called last and first men, I believe it is. Yeah. Last and first men, which is like, uh, if I had to describe it in a few words, I would say it's sci-fi architecture porn narrated by Tilda Swinton. <laughs> wow. And the whole time I was watching it, I was like, wow, Andy would fucking love this. <laughs> like for me, I found it extremely difficult to watch for the first 20 minutes. Cause it's just like shots of like architecture and Tilda Swinton talking in black and white and like, you know, occasionally weird swirls going by. You gotta see it. <laughs> but once good. you acclimate to it, like by the end of it, I was so into it. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like one star for the first 20, 30 minutes and then like five stars for the end of it. I'm like, oh no, it's over now already. <laughs> um, it's, it's a vibe for sure. And so next, I guess I won't go in order of, uh, but definitely check that definitely. out. I'd be yeah, 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 for sure. You should <laughs> talk about it on a future episode. But uh, that made me think of brutalism. And I've been thinking a lot about brutalism in architecture lately because um, I did a podcast with a guy in Russia and we talked about it. And just like, I feel like brutalism is maybe having a moment right now. And it's been, uh, it's, yeah. I've, I've had an evolving relationship with it because I grew up in Wisconsin near University of Wisconsin-Madison, which has right. a lot of brutalist architecture and Northwestern, the library and the mm -hmm. student union is both built in that style. You know, this kind of very stark, a lot of concrete, you know, kind of, I don't know. I feel like it feels very Russian, even though it's not originated in Russia and, you know, feels like Soviet or sorrowful Did or I ever industrial. Did the the br brutal in, in brutalism where it comes from no no brutal is basically just uh, when the french call uh, when the french talk about concrete that hasn't been painted or plastered over it's brute it's oh. raw raw concrete that usually used to get plastered and painted over so that the concrete itself it doesn't get affected by the elements or for decoration or whatever. And uh, uh -huh. the steel inside is uh, protected and that the structure lasts longer because it's not made out of stone that's used to uh, the elements and sort of gets stronger and stronger over time. It's concrete, so some protection is required. And then they found ways of building uh, with concrete where they absolutely didn't need uh, any kind of protection and uh the it, b it began to have an aesthetic moment where more and more architects all over the world actually uh started using that as an aesthetic uh to to show sort of progress and sort of post-war kind of a little bit also yeah, before no. the war values of uh, let's get this world back to where it should be and uh, not have uh, stupid, uh, but I also think it was it's what is what is very interesting is the kind of forms that 
because it's concrete it's like it's like uh, you know it's 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 free flowing you can do what you want with it but then there are within this brutalist architecture uh, regime or this kind of uh, this this entire oeuvre that is there the the forms are very sort of strong uh, monolith kind of uh, s- structures and uh, very uh, very volumetric in a way and mm-hmm. they have uh, they're very heavy i would say like when you look at it th- that is it what what is interesting for me is not that oh it did that and that's why it's called brutalism or anything it is actually the fact that well it was called this brutalism as as the architecture itself but then how these sort of um forms get attached to this uh yeah. to this term itself they they start becoming uh, so if tomorrow we There's were to uncanny sort of yeah. relationship between the name and what the architects because you know you take away a decoration you take away um and it's it's also a, a specific style that coincides so in human civilization there has been sort of you can point out times where a lot of universities were built within 50 years and then not too many for the next 50 and a lot of city mm-hmm. halls were built in the in these 50 years or especially in europe a lot of cities were destroyed in these these periods and a lot were built back up in these periods so they kind of come with a critical mass you know they come with a oh we have a lot of cousins all over the world at the time because you know huge modern looking university libraries are the thing that every big university in the world wants to do because every big university in the world has a library that doesn't have enough space right now because that many books have been written by now where every university library needs to expand a kind of this is very simplistic explanation but you know i i think you get what i'm saying so there's so this... yeah i just wanted to say about my like evolving relationship with it because when i was a teenager and when i was going to college like we used to joke around like all these buildings are so extremely but ugly like you know <laughs> who would have thought this is a good idea because i feel like back then for people my age like the platonic ideal of a university was like harry potter we want to go to school at fucking harry potter we want you know that kind of old feeling <laughs> like whatever university style and here we have these but ugly concrete buildings and so i feel like it was really in style in whatever the 70s and then kind of went out of style and i feel like it's back now and i'm curious if it took the same trajectory among the opinions of architects if it was kind of out of style and it is coming back at all and i just say that also because now like there's the instagram account cats of brutalism have you seen this no um where it's uh you take the heaviest you know most brutal thing brutalist architecture and then you photoshop cats <laughs> like the lightest cutest thing on top of them and uh so it'll be buildings in brutalist style all around the world with like a cat hanging off of it or like whatever and uh and yeah now so now i'm like huh maybe i do kind of like see get some enjoyment out of brutalism and obviously other people must be too if they're 
photoshopping cats on <laughs> images of it. So I kind of, yeah, I feel like I'm also find it more interesting now than I did when I was, you know, a teenager. Yeah, I 20s. guess the history yeah. of it is not. But what important. what you are saying, I think. I think I think what Jake says, cats of brutalism becomes one of the most radical critiques of brutalism itself. Yeah. When you place a, <laughs> because, like I said, there is no specific explanation for what you call but ugly and what we call uh, uh, hard, brutal architecture to kind of exist for in and its in its form in the forms. way. I mean, it's basically rhetoric. You can call it many different things and it would be i mean is it making a comeback no no it's uh, oh, okay. it's a it's a curatorial <laughs> comeback yeah. people are having a consumption um uh, resurgence right like they they want to consume those images yes that that like a curatorial comeback yes if you have a instagram profile that's all about uh, brutalism and you do something peculiar with it yeah it's going to be popular because people love consuming it but i don't think people are discussing at least as far as i know it, within architecture because it also moves really slow like yeah. a client comes to you and by the time the client actually gets the keys to whatever building whether it's a house or it, i think a minimum of three years in the normal world where we don't do things like china does a minimum of two to three years or uh, you know it could take a decade if it if it's big enough um, right so it moves really slow so i haven't heard anything where people are saying let's let's do some more brutalism yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess that that makes sense yeah yeah there's enough already out there and yeah, then the only other question, because we already kind of talked about crumbling architecture and, you know, maintenance via Brasilia. But my other question was, are architects concrete death merchants? Discuss. <laughs> um, which is basically like, you know, uh, with environment and climate change, like a journalist I know I've had on the podcast did like a story that won an award about like how specifically bad concrete is for the world and for the environment and how everything is made out of it and how we're screwing ourselves. And so, yeah. How do you feel about the role of architects and all that? At the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely a name that can be, um, uh, can make, uh, make sense for architects. Yes. Uh, not just concrete, glass would do the same thing too. I mean, um, yeah, but I think uh, I, I love uh, the phrasing of that, but I think it would it, it's a much bigger problem that we in architecture are trying to understand, not just understand, actually understand it pretty well. Don't let anyone tell you we don't understand it. We don't have a means of... Uh, Staking, let's say, our um, professional and ethical uh, force, you know, thrust on on what is called uh, the markets, and you, mm -hmm. you are you yourself. I mean, we we should build with the least amount of concrete. We should build with more natural ventilation. We should. Uh, avoid um, destroying landscapes that uh, have 
their own ecosystems, not try to expand cities too much, uh, go for density or not. I mean, there's nothing is a simple answer, of course, but um, the a lot of this will uh, not be a simple solution for a while. The architects will on one side have to play uh, death merchants and court jesters all at the same time for a while till things can things come to a point where um, we can build more um, friendly. I mean, I agree with. I mean, how how are you going to tell somebody to pay three times what uh, a building right. would normally cost? Because you was like, hey, just can't use concrete, man. It's like it's available. I can buy it for you. I agree with what he's uh, his his latter um, uh, sort of formulation, but I don't quite agree with your former. Like when you say, yeah, you can say someone who builds in concrete or in glass as concrete or glass death merchants. I also think there is a lot of um, there is a lot of architecture that is not done by architects in a way. Oh, know? absolutely. Mm. I actually yeah, go, no, back, go back on my word. So, There's way more architecture that's not done by architects. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we need to uh, get but into... Then there's a lot of also new cities coming up yeah. where this won't exist anymore. Architects yeah, the, will be building it. Yes, architect, and that's that's where I think... And that is where I agree with your with the latter ah, okay, part, okay. where I say that yes, when mm. when we we do have discussions about materials, we do have discussions about uh, uh, in all our uh, when we were studying architecture, and even now when we work, we do have those kind of discussions. It's just about the kind of the the idea of the expertise and the agency, and then there being a certain kind of trust which should be earned earned. Uh, putting it out there, uh, which should be earned. And then when we begin to intervene, we take those responsibilities and make sure that they they uh, reach their due uh, conclusions in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. So so I wouldn't and say... At least they find place yeah. in, in a project. I mean, it's easy to conceptualize. Not easy. It's... it's, it's uh, it feels great to sit on our drawing boards and conceptualize something that's really, really uh, not, uh, you know, self-sufficient, um, energy-wise, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, someone's got to, you know, you need a client <laughs> that wants it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm yeah. just saying, I mean... Or a government that enforces <laughs> it. Yeah. At and least one of the two. And I would say, fine, I mean... I've, I'm ready to stop using concrete tomorrow. Uh, today, yesterday. Today, yesterday, mind. yeah. I don't care. Give me something that's as versatile as it is. And there is Give me some. Like, there's there is, so much there are, that can do what concrete can do. Yeah, there are now materials that are there yeah. in the market. I can agree. I, 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 but then what about the cost, like he mentions? <laughs> you have ah, to bring those I mean, things down. And There's a lot of other... like. Whoever is mining uh, concrete uh, cement out of uh, the hills, I don't know if who his friends are, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we've been, but there has been enough complaining about concrete for 30 years in architecture and now outside also even Greta Thunberg is pissed about it, but. 
Right. Yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, we still haven't found the the leader of the concrete world uh, to tell him that. You like that? I like that. Leader of the concrete world. <laughs> leader of the concrete world. Yeah, no, and I, I realize that, you know, the, we're all just cogs in this greater machine. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I was interested to know your thoughts just because, <laughs> yeah, you're in this system and you can't necessarily do that much about it. But yeah. uh, We can, I'm, but... Uh, we have to sort of, there are other ways of doing it. Let's save that because that's a conversation in itself. I'm not trying to not answer it. I'm just saying that is a great conversation, but a conversation in itself yeah. for right, another, yeah. for another podcast, including that architecture porn movie you talked about. We can yeah. discuss those two. I think the next, <laughs> the next two can be these, uh, the next podcast we do with you is going to be <laughs> concrete debt merchants discuss. <laughs> Part <laughs> Act One <laughs> and Act Two is talking about the movie itself because architecture within movies is actually amazingly. It's been documented. There are productions. Yeah, like, like I want to blame Hollywood also. Like the number of <laughs> the number of movies that show like amazing glass and concrete buildings uh, around the world, uh, and I think Hollywood plays a big part in disseminating what a modern skyscraper should look like yeah. for the whole world uh, you can blame Hollywood for it because that is what led to first Dubai then Shanghai then uh, the business district in Beijing and uh, a lot more because people saw what the Americans did right yeah that's it's all true. your fault is what I'm trying to say <laughs> architectural imperialism way before yeah. Mr. Trump came in <laughs> yeah yeah well uh i uh, you know we've been talking for two hours so i guess we can leave it there i was also just going to say uh i was curious if you guys are familiar with uh the work of let me pull it up sorry i'm trying to remember of the the author's name he's the guy who wrote the great derangement his name is amitav ghosh um I love He's, him. And, uh, He's read him uh, quite a bit. I love him. And, you know, it's kind of about climate change, but it's also just about how imperialism kind of shaped how we lived. Yes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how old it is. And it's like discussing like, well, we have this idea that like cities are always built on water and things like that. Well, actually, that's something that like colonialists and stuff yeah. came up with. And like they we used to like live more sustainably and stuff, but basically it's about, yeah, how imperialism fucked everything. So, yeah. um, he's and an it anthropologist. talks a lot about he's... Southern Asia. So, yeah. um, like it's always talking about like Bangalore and things like that. Yeah. There was um, a time when I went through all the circle of reason, the glass palace. These are great, great books. I went through almost everything he had written over a period of two or three years and then I guess I moved on to other stuff. But yeah, this guy's amazing, even in his fiction. Uh, he's an anthropologist who writes uh, uh, also fiction. So, I mean, I love his literary style and also his sort of perspective on how he sees things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe also a topic for another time. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. It's Great been... feeling. Yeah. Episode number three, Jake Spring. We are ending with 
three pretty big topics to discuss already. Yeah. Friends of the broadcast interrupted. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Jake, for taking out the time and speaking with us. I think this has been yeah. Great. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I feel like I had more to say than even I expected, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting and fun. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. We'll make sure um, we convey to you all the cutie pie comments that we get about your shirt uh, once it's <laughs> uploaded. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I hope it's not too uh, gringo fabulous, <laughs> you know, leaning into the gringo and Hawaiian shirt thing. thing. <laughs> so there you go, guys. That was our conversation with Jake Spring. Hope you enjoyed it. Follow us on Instagram at broadcast.interrupted for links and updates on our upcoming episodes. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on YouTube in video form. So like it, share it, and most importantly, let us know what you think. Thank you. Ciao.